Hello and welcome to Peace, the podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Peace, a United Methodist community in Shoreview, Minnesota. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the lead pastor. And each episode will typically start with a sacred story reading coming from the Holy Scriptures, followed by the message that was given during our Sunday morning worship time. Any announcements for our community will come at the end of each episode, so stick around. If you are curious about learning more about Peace United Methodist Community, you can go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. If you would like to find more episodes, you can find them on our website or go to our show page, which is peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Once again, that's peacethepodcast.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, We hope that you enjoy this episode. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. And now, on to the Sacred Story reading. Diving in this morning, I want to start with Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And so, this is from Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came no one came out and no one went in. The Lord said to Joshua, "See, I have handed Jericho over to you, along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for 6 days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And that's the ark of the covenant. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. This is from Joshua chapter 6. As I mentioned last week, we're starting a series called Church Is dot, dot, dot. What is the church supposed to be? Is it supposed to be some place that we gather on a Sunday morning and talk about the Bible? Is it a place where we just come and gather and we do life with each other? Is it a, is it a place where we host other people and we open up our doors and we say, if you want to use our space, you can use our space? What is the church supposed to be? And in this series, we're, we're not so much talking about what should, where should the organ be when we move it or should we have a choir or not or, you know, what kind of order of service should we have? What we're here to talk about these next four weeks is a big picture, zooming out, 30,000 foot level, asking what is the church supposed to be? Who is the church supposed to be in 2023? And last week we talked about the church is a story of abundance, a story of abundance. That's who the church needs to be, telling the story that God is with us, there is enough, there's enough love, there's enough patience, there's enough kindness There's enough resources in our world if we just distribute them well. There is enough for all, and that's what God is up to, is providing enough for all of us. That's a story of abundance. So before we dive into Joshua and get into that Old Testament stuff, I just wanted to share with you a quick story about raising a teenager. Um, Some of you uh, know what that's like. Some of you know what it's like to raise a teenager. Some of you are anticipating that. Some of you are in the midst of it. Some of you are done and over with it. Um, And some of you can remember being one. And so um, as a parent of a teenager, the one thing that I hear probably most consistently from my teenager is, Dad, I just want to do things on my own. I don't need you anymore. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. 
Sure you don't. And then he's like, seriously, dad, I know what I need. And I'm like, okay, great. And then like he wakes up in the morning and then he like, I wake him up because of course he doesn't wake up to his alarm clock, right? He doesn't set an alarm clock. So I have to go wake him up and get him and say, time to for school. And he goes, dad, can you get my clothes set out for me? Dad, dad, is my backpack ready? I'm like, I'm drawing a line, son. Like you got to get yourself ready. But the cry for liberation, to be liberated from his parents' tyranny is constant, right? He constantly does not want to follow direction. He constantly wants to get away from us. He constantly wants to make his own choices. There's this cry for liberation. And the thing about liberation is that liberation is a process, right? And it's the same as like a kid leaving home, a kid getting getting old enough and moving out and, and doing all the liberating work. Because we may have this moment where we feel like we're out from underneath our parents, but it's more of like a, it's not really a one-time thing. It's like an ongoing thing. And then one day you wake up and you have a family of your own and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm not my parents' kid the same way I was before, even though you still kind of feel like you still are. Uh, and that's kind of the beauty of, of, of having relationship with your family is that you kind of never stop being their kid, even though you do end up leaving home and being out on your own. And it's this kind of trajectory that you find yourself on. And Israel, in the story of Joshua, is in the process of liberation. They're not quite there yet. And so if you know the story of Israel, they're in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, and they're crying out to God for freedom. They're crying out to God for liberation. And so God shows up and, and joins Moses and calls Moses to lead the people, and they lead the people over the Red Sea and out of Egypt, and it's this beautiful moment where they are now free, and they are, they are away from their captors in Egypt, and this great nation of Israel is going out, and they find themselves in the wilderness. And the wilderness is not exactly the place that they're supposed to call home. They're in this transitional liminal space where they find themselves kind of wondering, what does it mean to be human? Who are we now that we're free? And what's next for us? And so they're going to go to Mount Sinai, as we talked about last week in the book of Leviticus. They're going to get some instruction from the Lord. And then the Lord's going to lead them to the edge of the promised land. And what happens on the edge of the promised land is that the leaders that Moses sends out 12 people to scout out the promised land. Two of those people are named Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb are two of the 12 sent out and they go spy on the land to see what's out there. Joshua and Caleb come back and they say, oh, we got this. Like, we can do this. Like, God's with us. We can, this can happen for us. We, we can make it. Like, we're gonna do this. The promised land is right there for us. God is with us. We can do this. The other 10 are like, have you all seen the giants over there? They're huge. This, there's no way this is going to work. Like, I'm freaking out over here. And so the vote was 10 to 2 not to go into the promised land. And so God said to the people of Israel, okay, if this generation isn't ready for what I have for you, then we're going to wait until the next generation is ready. We're going to pause, and you're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness waiting. And you're going to spend that time preparing your hearts and your minds for the promised land. And so for 40 years, they wander in the promised land, waiting and waiting. And then finally, after 40 years of waiting, Moses passes away. God raises up Joshua, one who had faith, one who had leadership, one who had the vision, and says, now you lead the people into the promised land. And so they cross the, the river Jordan, 
and they start to enter into the promised land. And the first city they come to is the city of Jericho. Because for Israel and for us and for our time now, liberation is not a one-time moment. Liberation is a story that we're a part of, and the church is called to be a part of the story of liberation. Liberation sometimes feels like it has a beginning moment, like the moment Israel leaves Egypt, but liberation is not seen all the way until they're established and settled. It's like a teenager who wants to leave home, finally does, and then he ends up establishing themselves on their own. When they're on their own, when they're established, then they are fully free from the tyranny of parenting, right? Um, They're finally able to be settled and to be on their own. And so it's a process that takes time. Okay, so before I dive too much deeper into this, I got to give you three things that are going to prepare us for this message. Okay, the first thing is a Hebrew word. We've talked about it before. It's this word called chesed. Okay, everyone say chesed. Yes, and you have to make the chesed before you say anything, chesed, okay, chesed. Okay, chesed is this really beautiful, dynamic word in the Hebrew language because it's often translated as kindness or loving kindness, but it's actually bigger and better than that. I've talked about it before over the summer or last spring, but essentially what chesed is, is it's the way that relationship is supposed to be between God and humanity and humanity with each other. Like there's a healthy way of being in relationship. And it's this idea of chesed. And it's, the, it's, just, it's like when we're in relationship to its fullest and its most beautiful, that's chesed. Okay, so that's the first word I want you to be aware of. Second thing is the prophetic. So when we read the Bible, if you were to memorize the books of the Old Testament, or if you were to look in the content section of your Bible, the very beginning of it, typically an English translation, a Western translation of the Bible is going to have it divided up into sections. It's going to have the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah or the law. And so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then oftentimes in, in our Bibles, it has a historical section. And it talks about Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And so we have this history section before we get into the prophets and the writings and all of that other wisdom tradition and that beautiful stuff. Here's the problem with the way that our English Bibles are, are situated. There is no such thing as a historical section in a Jewish Bible. So the people that wrote the story, the people that put all this down to tell who they are and to talk about what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship to God, they did not have a history section. All they had was a prophetic section. They had the Torah, the first five books. They had a prophetic section, and then they had the wisdom tradition, which is like Psalms and Proverbs and Lamentations. But they only had a prophetic section, and it included The prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those minor prophets, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, all those minor prophets that are about, you know, four or five chapters or less long. But then it also includes Joshua and Judges and Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. Those history books are in the prophetic section of their Bible. They're in the prophetic section of our Bible. And so when we read those, we're not reading a Ken Burns history of the Civil War. We're not reading, here's what history has told us because we're watching a documentary. We're reading a group of people telling a prophetic idea of their own 
history, of their own story. So why would they include it in the prophetic section? And I know this is like Professor Stephen Hagen, and you're like, wow, I didn't know I signed up for this today. Okay, just bear with me for a couple of seconds, right? Okay, why would you include it in the prophetic section? Because when they wrote this all down, they were in captivity in Babylon. They were under the boot of Babylon, and they didn't know if they would ever have freedom again. And so they took all of their story, and they wrote it all down so that they could see the trajectory of God being with them and God bringing them into liberation. But their story is not one of being in captivity and then getting liberated. It's a story of being in captivity, being liberated, and then finding themselves again under the boot of another foreign power, this time Babylon. And so when they're writing their history, quote unquote, they are also warning themselves. They're saying, we've done this before and it didn't work out the way it should have. We left Egypt, we got the promised land, and then we lost it all to Babylon. That's a problem. We need to write this down so that we don't do this again. If we get freedom again, if God liberates us again, we can't lose it again. And so they write down their story, not just as a historical marker, not just as a biographer writing the story, but as a prophetic utterance to say, this is what we need to be careful about. We got to be aware of our history. Otherwise, we'll be doomed to repeat it. So Joshua is not just a historical account of the people of Israel. It's a prophetic account of what it is to be human in an Israelite. And then finally, as I said last week, every story that we tell in this series is going to have the number seven somewhere in it. This one has it a lot. There are seven priests. There are seven trumpets. There are seven, seven, seven. Seven times you go around. Seven days you do this. Seven is all over it. Why the number seven? What's significant about the number seven? The number seven in the Hebrew scriptures is a signifier. It's a, it's a mystical way of, for us to be aware of that there's something about completeness happening in the story. And I actually like this word better. There's something whole, W-H-O-L-E. There's something whole happening. There's a wholeness to what is going on, that there's a completeness, a wholeness to what God is up to, that when we see the number seven, this is a way of saying, this is right. This is whole. This is meant to be. This is completed. So you think about the seven days of creation. Did the earth get created in seven days? Honestly, I don't care. I think it's a really boring debate, and people have it all the time in Christianity. Who cares? It's a mystical way of saying this thing is complete, which is why on the seventh day, God takes a break. God rests from the work of creation. Why? Because it's whole. All of the love and goodness of God has been poured into it. It's a whole, beautiful, completed creation. It's supposed to work in harmony with each other. That's why we read about the seven days of creation. So this idea of wholeness is baked into this story. So Back to Joshua and Jericho. So the people cross the River Jordan. They go into the promised land and they come to the city of Jericho. And this time, Joshua has learned a lesson from 40 years ago. He doesn't send out 12 spies. Joshua sends out two spies. 
He's like, let's not bite off more than we can chew, and let's also learn from what we did before. Let's only send two, and let's have them go to Jericho and see what they can find. And so in Joshua chapter 2, these two spies go into the city, and they stay with the prostitute Rahab. And they go to Rahab's house to learn about the city and to understand what's going on, to scout it out. And so they're hiding out in Rahab's house. And so Rahab is taking care of them and is looking after them for the night. And then Rahab says this to the men that have, the spies that have been sent to Jericho. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. And now what she says there when she says the Lord is she's using the name that God gave God's self on Mount Sinai. It's the God who is with us, the with us God. So she is using the Israelite name for God. So she knows their story. She knows their history. So swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. So why did I take us back to Joshua chapter 2? Because that word kindness there is the word chesed. So Rahab, who's not an Israelite, who is in the city of Jericho, the spies come to her. She helps keep them safe. She protects them. She hides them from the king of Jericho who wants to find these spies and take them out. She hides them, keeps them safe. And then she says, I have shown you chesed. Now show me chesed in return. The reason why I point this out to you is because this dynamic, beautiful word for healthy, whole relationship, a relationship as it's meant to be, is two things. One, it's being used by a non-Israelite. So someone outside the community sees the need for this. They see the need for healthy, whole relationship, and they offer that. They extend that to the spies. The second thing is that this is one of the only times in the books of Joshua or Judges that this word is used. It's, it's, it's maybe used one other time in the entire books of Joshua and Judges. And if you look at the Bible and you were to vote on which, which books of the Bible are the most violent, are the most destructive, are the most painful, it's the books of Joshua and Judges. They are some of the most violent books in the entire Bible. And the word has said healthy relationship is completely absent from the majority of those books. So as we are conquering the land and as we are fighting battle after battle, we are not doing it with a mentality of hased in mind. We are not doing it with healthy relationship in mind. We're not doing it with a sense of wholeness in mind. Instead, we're trying to capture and gain and have power and place and position. Israel is trying to set itself up, understandably, and yet is doing this without Hased in mind. But before they ever fight a battle, it's being offered to them by a foreigner. It's Rahab saying, I am showing this to you. Now please show it to me. Because liberation is not just meant to be for the people of Israel. It's actually meant to be for everyone. Liberation is meant to be for everyone. When they first set out, when Abraham and Sarah first left to go to the land that God would show them, it was not to conquer and to kill and destroy. It was, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all other nations. And so on the verge of their first battle, 
on the verge of their liberation into the promised land, they have a vision of chesed, a vision of right relationship. And the question is, what are they going to do with that moment? What are they going to do when they have this opportunity to extend chesed, not just to Rahab, but maybe to the entire city of Jericho? Because here's the thing about this story. It's meant to be a prophetic story, not just a history. So we get to ask the question, what could God be trying to say to us through this story? That when they march around for seven days, when they march around the the city seven times on the seventh day, and they blow the seven trumpets, and they do all of this completeness, this wholeness, maybe the authors are trying to tell us something else. Maybe they're trying to say, this was already accomplished. You didn't need to take anyone out. Maybe you could have invited them in. Maybe you could have been a blessing to them as opposed to their destroyer. Maybe the violence that you are about to have didn't need to happen. Maybe there's a different way of going about this. Maybe the hased that's been extended to you, maybe you could extend it to others. Maybe there's a different way of going about the finishing of liberation. Now, I know that that's not the normal way of of talking about Joshua. I know the normal way of talking about it, isn't it awesome that the walls came crumbling down and everybody got killed in the city and Israel got to take over Jericho and we all go, woohoo, we're on the right side, we're the winners. I just don't love that, to be honest. And I might be in the minority if you were to poll a whole bunch of pastors and how they would preach this, this passage, but I don't want to be on the side of, look at how big our sword is. It's way bigger than yours. Look at how strong our army is. It's bigger than yours is. I would rather be on the side that says, maybe the prostitute Rahab was onto something and they should have paid attention to her. Maybe she had a better vision of what was about to happen. And you want to know whose name ends up in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ? Rahab. Rahab's name is in the chapter 1 of Matthew as part of the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, the one who has hope. Rahab, the one who offers protection. Rahab, the one who offers chesed. I think it's beautiful that her name is not just stuck in Joshua chapter 2 or Joshua chapter 6, but is also in Matthew chapter 1. A while back, my sister-in-law and I got to go on a civil rights tour of the South. And one of the stops that we made was at the parsonage for Dr. King when he was the pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. And part of the tour that we got to have of this parsonage is we got to go into the back kitchen area. And I didn't know all of the history of this parsonage. I knew that Montgomery was an important place for Dr. King and that he ended up leading the march to the Capitol and it was this beautiful 80-mile trek. Uh, And and so I I knew some of what was going on, but I didn't know all the history of what took place in this house. And in this, this beautiful older woman that was leading the, the, uh, the tour for just me and my sister-in-law, she said, I want you to come into the kitchen. Come into the kitchen. And I'm like, okay. And she goes, sit down right here at this table. And I'm like, okay. And she goes, this is where Dr. King sat when he had his epiphany. And I like, you know, you get chills, right? You're just like, whoa, what is, and I'm like, I need to learn, what, what do you mean the epiphany? And, and I should have known this, but I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have that memory get jogged in the moment. Dr. King's epiphany was that he sat at that table one night and he thought, Lord, I can't keep going. 
this is too much. It's too costly. I'm worn out. I'm, I'm spread too thin. Like, I can't keep this vision going. The people want us to fight, and I'm saying no fighting. We got to do this nonviolently. We got to do this different. I can't keep going. I'm worn out. It's going to cost me my life. I can't keep going. And he heard, an, he heard the voice of the Lord show up to him in that moment and say, I am with you. I'm with you in this. Keep going. You can do it. Like, I'm with you. And so he wrote about and he trusted the voice of the Lord in that moment to keep going. Two days later, two days after his epiphany, he's at church about four miles away or so, and a bomb goes off in that parsonage with his family home. There's an explosion on the front porch, and he goes running back home to find out what happened. And as he gets there, there's a crowd gathered around the house. Thankfully, his family was in the back bedroom and the explosion was just on the front porch. It's still marked on the front porch of the parsonage. You can see the spot where the explosion happened. Thankfully, his family was okay. He checked on his family and then he went back out to the front porch to assess the damage. And there's a crowd gathered outside and they've got, they've got torches and they've got weapons and they are ready. And they are saying, you say the word, Dr. King, and we will go. We will fight back because they tried to take you and your family out and we won't stand for it. And he said that in that moment, he had a wave of calm come over him. And he said, it is not for us to levy violence on anyone, but we will do this with love. Hate will not win this night. Only love will win this night. And he told the crowd to just go home so that they could keep doing the work, keep doing the work of love and compassion because liberation was not just meant for them, but it was liberation for everyone. Dr. King knew that liberation was for all people, the oppressed and the oppressor. And so the question is, as a church, we're called to a story of liberation. A story of liberation. And I think we need to learn from the history that we read in the book of Joshua that yes, we need to abolish things, slavery like in Egypt, and we need to leave, and we might find ourselves in a wilderness for a time, and we need to enter into a promised land, but it's not just a promised land for us or people that look like us or people who vote like us or people who agree with us but it needs to be a promised land for all of us. It needs to be a promised land that we can all come together and we can hear and we can learn and we can understand and we can figure out how to be brothers and sisters and siblings and we can figure out what it means to move forward as a people, all unified, not excluded. We have to learn from the civil rights movement that says we can do this, but we're not gonna do it the way they want us to. They want us to fight back. They want us to become the enemy, but we won't become the enemy. We will be love to them. We will be love and we will be compassion. We will make room and we are going to do liberation, not conquering. So how can we be a people that learns from the story of Joshua, learns from the civil rights movement, and then moves into, moves into an opportunity to be a part of a story of liberation? How can we listen well? How can we understand people different from us well? so that we can all experience the liberation necessary. Because there are people in our community, there are people in our city who are not experiencing liberation, who don't experience the world the same way, who don't have the same rights, 
whose vote doesn't matter the way it does for other people, whose education is not the same as others. There are people that are being downtrodden. There are people who are being criminalized and at a rate that is higher than others. And something needs to change about those things. We have to complete the work of liberation, but it's liberation for everyone. That's what it means to be a reconciling church for everyone. So let's join in that good work. Let's see that work through, but let's not do it. Let's not do it the way that creates enemies, but let's do it in a way that creates siblings. Will you pray with me? God of grace, God of mercy, God of liberation, God who abolishes slavery and moves people into freedom, God, help us to join in the work that moves towards liberation. Help us to be people of hope. Help us to be people of chesed so that we can see the wholeness, the completeness, the beauty of what you are up to and what you've invited us into. God, help us to do that hard work. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, we're kind of in the midst of a four-week series, but also during this four-week series, we're highlighting our stewardship campaign. And what we're calling our stewardship campaign is a renewing for everyone. And what I didn't say last week as I kind of kicked this off, I, I highlighted things like Doug coming on board and Katie coming on board and the new parking lot, that we've been in this process of renewing and this process of becoming who we're going to be and stepping boldly into the future that, that God has for us and that we are, are trying to have a vision for. What I didn't say last week, and kind of the only thing I want to say this week, is thank you. Um, thank you. For the last year and a half that I've been your pastor, we've uh, worked really hard as a team, whether it's the trustees or the, uh, the finance committee, SPRC, or whether it's just people volunteering to help with hospitality or all over the place or the steering committee. So many people have volunteered and given their time and their effort to see this place move forward. And it's been a, a big change. We've made some big movements and seen some trajectory shifts here, and we're excited about new people that have joined our community, that have come on on board and are sharing in the vision and, and plugging themselves into different ways and helping out. And so it's been really fun to see the trajectory that we're on. And so I just want to say this week, thank you. Thank you for all the ways that you've blessed our community, the ways that you make it better, the ways that you make it what it is, because this community is more than what we do on Sunday. It's what we do all the other times outside of this hour. It's all the ways that we connect and we gather and we share life with each other and we provide help for each other. And so thanks for the ways that you have done that. Next week, uh, we are going to have some uh, very uh, technical and uh, specific information about our stewardship campaign. Because if you don't know what a stewardship campaign is, if that word was just kind of went right over your head, uh, basically it's our way of asking you to indicate what you're able to do financially to in the next year so that we can try to plan a budget around what we think is going to happen. Um, we want to be responsible with the funds that we have, with the resources that we have, and we also want to be able to envision the future, and we need to be able to have an idea of what the financial situation is going to look like. And so we're going to have some more concrete information for you next week and coming out in some emails, and so be on the lookout for that, and then we'll have cards for you to fill out so that we can we can all get on the same page and, and uh, plan well for, for what God has for us in this next year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Peace, the podcast. 
If you would like to learn more about our community, go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. For more episodes of this podcast, you can go to our website or go to the show page, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Again, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. May you experience the love of God and may you have peace.